0: You're listening to the College Info Geek Podcast, where it's all about learning more, paying off your student debt, landing your dream job, and being awesome at college. Now, here's your host, Thomas Frank. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the College Info Geek Podcast, growing your brain and upgrading your college experience one episode at a time. I'm Thomas Frank. I'm the founder of College Info Geek and your host, and today... I'll be interviewing somebody who actually used to be a writer for College of Ogeek. His name is Ryan Wynn, and he was a pre-med at UC Santa Barbara and at that time ran a cool blog called Practical Pre-Med, which I was following when I was an undergrad. Now, when I discovered his blog, he came over and wrote for me for a while, and we collaborated on a few things, and it was really cool. Now, Ryan's actually a full medical student at the Western University College of Osteopathic Medicine of the Pacific in a city that's right next to Los Angeles. And he also runs a site called WhiteCoatDO.com, which is sort of a continuation of his blogging efforts from the practical pre-med days. Nowadays, he's, he's a med student. So the reason I'm doing this episode is I got an email from a reader, and you may have heard about this in the last episode where I did Q&A with my roommate Martin. The reader, well, he was a med student himself, or actually pre-med, and he was asking me about... Uh, what time during your pre-med career you should do internships and whether or not he was behind. And I realized something. I did a business and I did a business major myself. I did an internship, but I had no idea if there were differences between how business students should do things and how students in more technical majors like medical majors or engineering or uh, that, that kind of thing. I didn't know if there were differences in between the requirements Uh, for what you should be doing for your career. And also, I didn't really know the differences between the workloads and what kind of studying techniques you need to adopt for those kind of majors. So... I knew that Ryan was a med student and I knew he ran his own blog. So first off, I recommended that the reader email him, which you can also do since he's got his own website. But I wanted to bring him onto the podcast to talk about his journey from being a med student, a pre-med student to now being a med student and actually getting some real world experience in hospitals. So this is going to be a great episode for anybody who's curious about how a med student uh, goes about their college journey. If you are a pre-med or a med student yourself, you're going to get some great insights from this episode. But if you're not, I think this episode will be useful to you anyway, because Ryan goes over some excellent study strategies that he uses to remember lots of information. And even if you're not a medical student, this is stuff that you can apply to your own college experience. And he also talks about his experience applying to med school and his techniques for standing out and um, getting accepted in a very, very competitive process. So, this is going to be a great interview, and I know you're going to like it. But first, guys, if you have questions about the college experience, about studying and being more productive, maybe getting internships and standing out to recruiters, or managing your money, getting out of debt, and becoming more financial educated, anything like that, email me. I'm Thomas at collegeinfogeek.com. I want to hear your questions. I reply to emails. So you'll get a personal response from me answering your question and also my roommate Martin and I do uh you, I think we're going to be monthly at this point Q&A episodes. Where we play some video games together, we take five reader questions, and we answer them on the podcast, and it's a lot of fun. So if you have a question, send them in. I'm getting lots of questions, but I want to get more and start building at the database. I will get back to you, and then we'll make some more awesome podcast episodes. All right, couple of segments that I do every single episode before we get into the main content. Number one, resources of the week. So every week I highlight one tool that I have been using that has made me more productive, more productive and one learning resource that has enlightened me and uh, improved my life. So this week's feature tool is called unmark.it uh, You can find that at unmark.it instead of .com or anything like that. And what it is is a bookmarking service that turns bookmarks into essentially to do's. Now, this is very useful for me because I'm the kind of person who will find a cool article or a cool video or a new tool that I want to check out. And then I'll open a new tab and just leave it there. And after a while, I've got like 500 open tabs and my computer is using all of its RAM just to try to keep Chrome open. And it sucks. So um I I used to use a service called Pinboard to kind of just shove all of these resources and things that I found into a bookmark manager and kind of leave them. And Unmark it is A little bit like Pinboard or like Delicious or any other bookmarking service you may have seen, except for it's got sort of to do features built in. So you can sort of process the bookmarks you want to go through and keep yourself accountable to uh, learning the information that you wanted to learn. So check out unmarked.it if you're looking for a bookmarking solution. Uh, I really like it so far. Now, this week's featured resource is a book written by Nick Winter called The Motivation Hacker. Nick is an awesome dude. He built the iPhone app called Skritter, which is a tool for learning Chinese and Japanese characters. He runs a website uh, with a bunch of other people called Code Combat, which is a kind of a video game that teaches people how to code. And he's done all these crazy things like pledging $7,000 to Beeminder to force himself to write his book. And the book is all about Hacking your motivation, figuring out how to generate ridiculous levels of motivation to achieve lots of different projects in a short amount of time. Uh, I love the book. It's about 130 pages, so it's a really short read. and It's only three dollars and I actually have it on my list of essential books for college students. So definitely check that book out if you're looking To figure out how to gain more motivation. I actually have my own book on productivity coming out pretty soon called Hacking Productivity. And while I definitely want you guys to check that out when it comes out, The Motivation Hacker is, I think, just as useful as my book will be. And you should definitely check it out. All right. So also the listener tip of the week is the other segment I do. Uh, Each week, I want to feature a tip from a listener about doing better in school, landing jobs and internships, or mastering your money. And if you have a tip and want to feature on the show, you can email it to me at thomas at collegeinfogeek.com or tweet it to me. I'm Tom Frankly on Twitter. And uh, if you tweet or send me a listener tip, I'll feature it on the show. This week's tip comes from Robbie Williford, who actually has been on the show before, I believe in episode 10, where we talked about um, the differences between in class learning and out of class learning. And Robbie's been doing some awesome things in his own college career. And his tip, is simply get out of your room and meet people as much as possible. Network, network, network. And I could not agree more. I actually just got back from a pretty uh, huge conference called World Domination Summit. And now we didn't sit around petting cats and and steepling our fingers and chuckling to ourselves. It was it was it's kind of a hard thing to describe, but it's a lot of entrepreneurs and creative people, writers, bloggers, filmmakers, musicians all coming together. And I probably met at least 50 people that I'm trying to email back because they were all super awesome, and even though the conference was kind of expensive, it was a hundred percent worth it because I met a ton of new people. I know I can help them; they can help me. We're gonna bounce ideas off each other, become great friends, and it was so worth it. So uh, I just want to echo Robbie's tip here: um, whenever you have an opportunity coming up to go to a networking conference or a cool event, just jump into it. It might be a little scary, but it's gonna be worth it in the end. Alright, so the show notes for this episode, as always, can be found at sigpodcast.com, that's C-I-G podcast.com, and there I link to this week's tool learning resource, along with anything we mentioned in the actual meat of the episode. We've got quotables there that you can tweet out, a little bit of a district, uh, description, and contact links For Ryan, if you want to get in touch with him and ask him any questions. So, check him out, sigpodcast.com will take you to the main podcast page on the site. You can scroll down and find the link to episode 26 with Ryan Wynn. All right, well, let's dive into this interview with Ryan. All right, well, welcome to the show, Ryan. Good to have you here. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so um, you wrote for College Info Geek a few years ago. And, uh, you yeah. were also running practical premed.com back then. So, um, you know, I know you from there and I was sitting around the other day and I was thinking to myself, I did this business major, and, you know, MIS is a great major and everything, but. I have no idea what like the in the trenches college experience is like for somebody who's in a more technically difficult major like Mm -hmm. pre-med or, or engineering or something like that. So I figured I'd have you on the show to kind of talk about your story and your journey through the pre-med. And now you're an actual med student and kind of Mm -hmm. just see uh, how that went for you and what the differences are between those two majors.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Like I, Like you mentioned, I wrote for College Info Geek a couple of years ago. So it's really nice to be back, be back on the podcast. Um, Yeah. So I did my undergrad experience at UC Santa Barbara, where I majored in microbiology. So totally different than business. Um, I actually took one business class sometime in high school and I just totally bombed at it. So I think that experience scarred me for a bit. So I kind of just stayed away from it when I actually decided to head to college. Mm. Um, but yeah. And I, I, kind of had an idea throughout college that I wanted to go into medicine. Um, I didn't really seal that idea until junior year, but my first two years I had this vague idea that I wanted to go into medicine. And, um, it's one of those things where you kind of, you have to, to plan out, your courses for multiple years because there are so many requirements to apply to medical school. I, when I applied, I, I think you had to take one year of English, a year of math, you of OCHEM, bio, physics, and there's just so many different hoops that they make you jump through to apply to medical school that it's not something that you can just decide, hey, I want to go to medical school. I'll take a year of classes and be done with it. It's something that really does require, I'd say, at least two to three years of prerequisite classes that you need to take before you can even apply. And looking back, I don't, there's not many things from those classes that I actually use in the first two years or even now that I'm in my (laughs) clinical rotations. Um, so to me, they, some of the requirements feel a bit outdated, but I I think they do teach you to think critically, which is something that we use every single day. But, Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're kind of just hoops that you have to jump through. And I know that medical schools are kind of changing the requirements now because they want more holistic and humanistic medical students. So you're seeing more schools that are requiring sociology, psychology, and more of the humanities classes as well. So it's something that if you do decide to apply to medicine, you have to map out when am I going to take that year of OCAM, When am I going to take the humanities? When am I going to take English and things like that?
0: Interesting. Yeah. So uh, I guess that's one thing that you and I share a uh, similarity between our majors is that there's <laughs> a lot of stuff that we're not, <laughs> that we're not, uh, that we're not using these yeah, days. So, definitely. so what's, what's the end goal for you? Is it to become like a family practice doctor or are you looking to go into research? Like what's, what's the goal of all this?
1: I'm um, really interested in clinical medicine. Um, okay. there's, there's a couple different, I, kind of always grew up thinking of a doctor as someone that could talk to you really about any aspect of medicine so um, at this point I haven't I've only seen family medicine that's the rotation I'm on right now Hmm. Um, so I'm I'm really open to any specialty but uh, family medicine emergency or internal medicine which are three of the specialties that can really talk to you about anything in medicine are the ones that I'm most interested in at this point Okay. um but i do a couple other things in terms of i've all i've written throughout college and then also i write now uh for a online magazine called the almost doctor's channel it's okay. kind of like college intro geek but the uh the medical school version of it and um interested in health policy and health tech so i have a lot of different interests around that all kind of center around medicine um and i think that's one of the cool things about Going into medicine is that you don't just have to practice clinical medicine. You can do that, as, and but there's also another whole world of opportunity that kind of revolves around it.
0: Yeah. So so explain to me what clinical medicine means. Does that I mean like you'd be working in a big hospital in like a very specified uh, department or or is it something I'm not at all aware of? Oh, yeah. yeah, That's basically what it is. Clinical medicine is working directly with patients and
1: um, interacting with them and getting histories and doing physicals and uh, working directly with patients. And that can be either in a a clinic out in the community or in a hospital, as long as you're getting direct patient contact.
0: Okay, so I guess I guess I thought of family practice is almost like that in a smaller uh, role, but maybe the family practice is kind of like a generalist role and then you'd have a more specified role. Is that kind of what it is? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Something like that.
0: Okay. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So with that goal in mind and, you know, like keeping in the the frame of mind that my major was just four years yeah. and then most people go on to get a job, uh, what, like how many, how many years of schooling do you need? And how does that break down between like undergraduate and a graduate degree and all that kind of stuff?
1: Oh yeah. So for undergrad, you could take anywhere between uh, whatever however long it takes you to get your undergraduate degree i'd say most schools the vast majority of schools are require that you have at least a bachelor's before you apply to or by the time you matriculate to medical school uh, so that takes however long it takes people to take it took me four years and then after that you go to medical school which is another four years and then after that you finally get your doctor degree so you finally get to be called doctor so and so just kind of cool Um, but you aren't ready to practice fully on your own yet. What they have you do is this program called a residency. So you do that for three to anywhere between three to seven years and your residency is in the specialty that you choose to do. So let's say I decide to go into family medicine. Those residencies are usually about three years where you you have your doctorate degree. And you're practicing medicine, but you're practicing under the supervision of what they call an attending physician, which is someone who has many, many years of experience as a doctor and kind of is supervising everything that you're doing to make sure that you're you're going, you're making the right decisions. And by the time you're done with your residency, you're fully competent as a doctor.
0: Right. Okay. So, um, so the the residency and your med school degree do those years overlap at all or are you like in school for eight years and then doing an additional three for like a total of 11 before you start fully practicing can they kind of overlap and do that uh they're separated in that during medical
1: school you're paying tuition um probably taking out loans to cover the tuition as well as your living expenses and when you're doing your residency you're actually you become an employee of the program that you are a resident with so say you become a resident with UCLA you actually become an employee of UCLA so they're paying you they're paying you for your services and um, so that's that's kind of the key difference is that you're a student for those first four years, and then after that you're a resident. you're actually a doctor who's practicing under the supervision of somebody else, but you're actually being paid for those years
0: okay, so it's uh, it's about eleven years of kind of training, but the last three or if it goes longer it's almost like a job you're just not completely independent right exactly yeah it's, okay.
1: it's, it's very much like a, a supervised apprenticeship.
0: Cool. So that's 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 actually a a much longer timeline than anything I'm used to. Oh, yeah, it's very long. (laughs) It's it's, it's pretty eye opening. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about your undergrad experience, because I think Mm -hmm. a lot of the people listening are undergrads. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you said that the first two years for your undergrad degree, you hadn't fully decided that you were going to go into med school. And Mm -hmm. the last two years were so uh, for the first four years. Is it kind of like you major in something that would be? sort of related to med or do you declare as a pre-med at some point so at uc santa barbara at least for the first two years you have to your major is
1: pre-bio so you have to record you have to do all the basic classes like uh, calculus uh, bio physics ochem before you can officially declare as a biology major and i i think such a big part of that is that ochem biophysics triad is really just a weeding out process that they use and um (laughs) a lot of people there's classes like my biology class had I think at least 600 plus people in it and there are obviously going to be a number of people who do well but a number of people who aren't going to pass the class so I think they they use those classes very much as a as a weeding process for the first two years um so for me I I I was I didn't really know what subset of biology I was really interested in until my last uh my last quarter of my second year of my sophomore year. That's when I took a microbiology class and I was really fascinated by it. I was really into the bacteria and the viruses and the fungi and that class kind of, I just had such a great teacher that, that kind of that's what sparked me to decide to major in microbiology. So that's what I ran with my last two years of undergrad.
0: Cool. So and so microbiology kind of leads into being able to what was that word, matriculate as a as a med student?
1: Yeah, yeah. And I, I it related it actually helped a lot with my first two years of medical school in that I was able to I had a really strong understanding of bacteria and fungus and how the human immune system works. And those are some of the the topics that just come over again and again and again in medical school. So it, back when I was deciding I want to become a microbiology major, in the back of my mind, I did realize that it could probably help with medical school in the future. So that was definitely one of the reasons I decided to become that major.
0: Awesome. Yeah, it's good to look uh, look into the future and see what you can do now to kind of set yourself up for those big wins later. Definitely, definitely. Uh, But I, I have been noticing that
1: medical schools have been accepting more people with majors that are not traditionally biology related lately. And I think that's because it's part of that new wave of admissions that they want to take those more humanistic, holistic positions. And that's why you're actually starting to see a lot of people with non-biology related subjects come into medical school, such as English or anthropology or other humanity related majors like that. And I think you definitely get a competitive, it almost is a competitive edge in the admissions process because you stick out. You're not just another biology major who did research and has volunteer experience because I guarantee you can find tens of thousands of applicants just like that.
0: Right. So um, right. so when you say the word holistic, are you referring to more of like a kind of uh, maybe generalist education? Or are you referring to the like maybe that the medical schools are looking to integrate holistic medicine into mainstream medicine? Is it like is it the first one or the
1: last one? Uh, it's it's more like they're looking for physician for medical for students who will become doctors that look at people from not just their symptoms and their their diagnoses and their disease, but also the bio-psycho-social environment that they live within. So let's say I'm, I'm telling a patient to exercise more and to eat better because... He, you know, his, high, his blood pressure is really high. His blood sugars for his diabetes are a little bit out of control, but it's hard for him to do that. If he lives in an environment where say he can't necessarily go for a run because he doesn't live in the greatest area or he can't purchase and eat better food because all the food around him is fast food and that's the cheapest food that he can afford.
0: Mm. So
1: it's, it's taking into account the environments that people live in. In addition to the things that they present to you in a medical sense
0: okay so it's kind of trying to get away from that whole here's your symptom here's the you know very specific cure for that symptom and and trying to focus at least at least integrate the idea that you should look at your health as one big picture exactly okay exactly yeah that's cool that's honestly like and I'm not like a medical expert, but I would, mm. as, I would assume, you know, from what I've read and, and research and everything that that is a mm. pretty good approach, you know, try to be healthy in general and yeah. also look for the scientific specific cures to conditions and kind of meld those two together rather than going all out on one. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Cool. So, uh, so what was your workload like in undergrad? Cause I mean, I'm, I specifically planned from high school to not have a whole lot of coursework in college. Mm. And I did Mm. I did some uh, some like dual credit classes Mm -hmm. and I got it to the point where for me it was 12 to 15 credits a semester of coursework. And then I could spend the rest of the time on like part time jobs to help my debt or, Mm. you know, my blog or everything. So what's Mm. the what's the workload like for somebody in a more scientific major like you were?
1: Yeah, so the first two years is actually pretty pretty heavy. Uh, my first, My freshman year, I tried to keep the workload light somewhere between 12 to 15 units like you so that while I was still adjusting to what college was like, I didn't have to stress about having five to six classes to juggle at the same time. And once I got more comfortable with the workload, that's when I started adding all the more difficult weeder classes like they had so i took o bio and physics all at the same time which in retrospect was a terrible idea cuz those are <laughs> the three weeder classes they're trying to do all at the same time and it's just a lot of a lot of information being thrown at you at the same time <laughs> yeah um, and and that's partly why my sophomore year actually my grades kind of dipped a little bit and i was kind of relying on the study habits that I had in high school to carry me along. And I was realizing by my sophomore year that I just had really poor study habits. I was kind of just getting by on, I guess, being smarter, but I was realizing that my, by my sophomore year, I wasn't really, whatever intelligence I had in high school wasn't necessarily translating to my college classes. Okay. So the workload actually caught up with me my sophomore year. And that's when I found study hacks, the blog by Cal Newport and specifically he has a series called four weeks to a 4.0 and that pretty much changed how I studied for the rest of college and also into medical school. Um, Cal Newport is a professor at MIT, I think now, and he has some of the the best study strategies I've ever seen. And I've read all about different kinds of study strategies online and his stuff is by far the best. And for any undergraduates who really need to kind of up their study strategies and want to improve their GPA, I'd say that's really the best resource that I can recommend.
0: Yeah, definitely. I I read his, uh, he he had two books out that I read when I was an undergrad. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was like how to be a straight a student. Yeah. And then there was, uh, how to win at college. I want to say,
1: yeah, that was and
0: both of those are on my essential reading list. They're both really good books. And then he also mm-hmm. wrote, um, mm-hmm. so good. They can't ignore you.
1: Oh yeah. That's which a good that one was a
0: real good one. I listened to that one on audiobook, and mm-hmm. I really liked, uh, you know, all the stories he had in that one, mm-hmm. but yeah, his, his blog is amazing. And, uh, mm-hmm. I guess I haven't read that specific series. So like, do you remember any of the specific tips he gave for studying,
1: in yeah. that series? Yeah, I, I remember them. So the first one, or one of the, the most important ones was turning your your learning into active learning. A big part of what I was doing my first two years was just kind of reading the books. Um, if the teacher assigned questions and I do the questions but if not then I'd never do questions and it's very passive just flipping over highlighting and so what he suggested was turning all of your lecture notes into question points mm. and then so by the end of the so while I was taking notes instead of just saying typing verbatim what the professor was writing I would turn what the professor was saying into a question so if they're talking about let's say the TCA cycle I would write it for each important point that they went over, the TCA cycle is uh, this this energy producing uh, biological process in the human body. But
0: um, is that like the ATP producing cycle? Yeah, yeah, it produces okay. ATP
1: and things like that. Yeah,
0: I took a nutrition uh, class. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. So, anyways, I, I would turn instead of just listing the processes, I would turn. The processes into questions. And so by the end of the lecture, I had all the processes. I had the whole lecture into a set of maybe 10 to 20 questions. And so I'd just review those um, just over and over and over again. And by the, by the end of the week, I would review them basically walking between my classes. And by the end of the week, I had basically studied that maybe five or six times already. So I didn't need to and it was all active learning. It was all forced recall. And my grades dramatically improved. There's the quarter before I used that four weeks or 4.0. I think I had a 3.0 mm-hmm. in that one quarter by itself. And then right after that, I got a 3.9 in the next quarter. And it was such a dramatic turn just Man. using those things that he uh,
0: suggested. That's awesome. So uh, that leads me to like a question that I thought, did did you write the questions during the lectures? Or did you like take notes and then formulate questions afterwards when you were reviewing?
1: I was actually able to, at first it was a little hard, but I was, within a week, I was able to to take the notes and make the questions during the lecture. Okay. And it was very, very very first order question. So um, I basically turned whatever statement they said into a question. And it was very straightforward question, not too many hard hard questions
0: questions i'm getting like a am getting like a, a post idea here right now like the jeopardy style of of uh, review or something like that yeah where you yeah, have to turn everything like into a question yeah yeah that'd and be it, awesome you, you know, know like just go ahead oh yeah i mean personally i never uh i never did the question thing mm. but i always heard that it's it's a really good way to mm. actively learn is to formulate all the facts into questions so you have to learn how to answer them exactly
1: And I end up turning them basically into – because I typed them out on my computer. So I had one side – I the questions and one side the answers. And at the end of the day, I just print them out and I just fold the paper. And then I just walk around campus. I look kind of weird walking around campus with a half-folded piece of paper just talking to myself. But, hey, it worked for my grades. And I was able to get into school. So (laughs) (laughs) it worked out.
0: So was that your – was that your like – preferred tool for studying was just paper and, or did you like Evernote or anything?
1: Uh, I did use Evernote, uh, towards the end of my third year is when I started, uh, the end of my junior year is when I started, I actually found out about Evernote and I used it to kind of collaborate all my notes. Mm. Uh, but in terms of actually learning, I just, the questions really brought me, especially my sophomore and junior year where a lot of the, the tests were multiple choice and they're basically just memory recall so if that's how the exam's going to be you might as well study that way as well
0: yeah yeah for sure uh so i want to get into like the process of applying to med school and your side projects but i have like a a personal question so like yeah. have you have you watched cosmos at all like the new one no i haven't so when i was a sophomore i had i had to quiz my girlfriend at the time mm. on ocam because she was taking it but mm-hmm. I never paid attention to any of like the molecule diagrams. Mm-hmm. So on Cosmos, they were talking about like, what's so great about carbon and carbon is like the one type of atom that can bond to other atoms <laughs> and like no other atom can do that. So like when you're studying, ochem, does every single diagram of a molecule have a carbon atom at the center? Because I guess I got to got that from there, but maybe I'm wrong. I I think so okay was so for, in terms of all the things I've had to
1: learn over the past couple of years okay was so far away ago <laughs> but I think I think it is centered along okay uh just organic materials which I think by definition have to have carbon in them Yeah yeah don't this this is kind of a okay yeah my roommate's telling me yes so <laughs> <laughs> like
0: asking somebody that, like that, five years out of
1: that, that gives O-chem. you an idea of how much OChem I use on a daily basis. <laughs> well, my OChem is from
0: uh, one little blurb in Cosmos. Yeah. Just kind of. So I think you're a little ahead yeah. of the game on me. Yeah. Did you find OChem to be like your hardest class among those those three weed out classes you were talking about? Because I've heard certain people say yes and certain people say no.
1: Uh, yeah, in a way, it was because it's so much different than anything else. It's it's just so chemistry heavy and mechanism heavy. And you have to understand a lot of principles that I just never think about or never use nowadays. But I remember having to go just toiling over them back in undergrad. And
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs>
1: just it was just difficult is the best way to put it.
0: All I remember are giant stacks of note cards that were yeah. way too big for their own good. Oh, yeah. And definitely. me just kind of <laughs> like like sitting there with yeah. them held in front of me. And then she described them and I'd go, yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly nothing. Like. But I guess yeah. it helped her out. Yeah. So, uh, you know, when I when I met you, you were doing practical pre-med, which mm-hmm. is is no more at this point. But it was your blog, basically, it was it was like College Info Geek, but to mm-hmm. specifically help pre-med students. Yeah. And you were also volunteering for, uh, what was it, Doctors Without Borders or something like that? Uh, doctors so? Without Walls.
1: That, without Walls, so, that's right. Yeah, so that that was kind of the my, the turning experience of my college uh, career. And that my, towards the end of my sophomore year, my junior year, I found... This nonprofit called Doctors Without Walls that's in Santa Barbara, and what they do is they deliver free medical care to the street homeless in Santa Barbara. Um, they set up their own clinics in the parks, and they also do this really interesting brand of medicine called street medicine where we put on backpacks, with medications and medical supplies and with doctors and interprofessional health teams. And we deliver care directly on the street. So we go up to where the, where the patients are on the streets and we meet them there. And a lot of these patients kind of fall through the cracks of society and they don't necessarily access the healthcare system. So it was really cool to be able to go to where they were at instead of expecting them to come to us and that was such a great experience for me because it was something to really motivate me to do medicine. I met a lot of great mentors and I found a, a tribe per se of a community of people around me who were just so focused on what they're doing and so inspiring. And I think that's the most important thing that you can do in, in college is find a group of people that you can surround yourself that are kind of all acting towards the same goal. And that for me is what really turned me on. And that's
0: when I was like, all right, this is definitely what I want to do. That's awesome. So, so like how much time did you end up putting into that? Like maybe like per week or per month? Oh, a lot. So yeah. Like I was saying, my freshman and sophomore year, I I stacked my classes once I got
1: comfortable, where I was taking 17 units a quarter. Um, But towards my junior and senior year, I was enjoying doing the Dark Style Walls, volunteering so much that I was probably, I put my units down to maybe 14 to 12 Mm -hmm. a quarter. And um, I was able to just spend 10, 20. Maybe more hours per week with Docs at Walls because I not only volunteered but I served as the communications coordinator. So I redesigned their website, uh, launched an email newsletter, gave public speeches, met with uh, public health officials to advocate, and it just became this really all-encompassing thing where I just wanted to do that all the time. And I felt like I was learning such real-world life lessons from that that. Uh, I wasn't going to let school get in the way of my education.
0: Yeah, and it sounds like you kind of, like, gained a lot of different skills from that position as well that you kind of wouldn't have learned in in school. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, Public speaking, writing, uh, advocacy. It was a
1: ton of stuff that you can't really learn in a classroom, I feel like. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, I'd really encourage anyone who's interested in medicine to try to find a nonprofit like that that has – a community that's willing to kind of take them in like that.
0: Yeah. Or, and anyone who's not in uh, you know, pre-med, there's still like great volunteer opportunities oh, yeah, out there. Definitely. And I know like I had a lot of fun doing volunteer projects. And honestly, if I'm asking myself, you know, very honestly, I think that 90% of what I learned at school fact wise came from on the job, hands-on experiences oh, yeah. like that. Definitely. And the things I learned in class, I just kind of did to get the grade. Some of yeah. them are still useful, uh, you know, I'll admit it, but a lot of them is just like I got through it because they told me to get through it, but that was about it. Yeah. So if you're spending 20 hours a week, you know or more or less but sometimes but around that with doctors without borders and then you're also you know you're maintaining doctors this walls. doctors without walls like i don't know why you're yeah, saying that No <laughs> worries.
1: borders is the one that does the inter. it does uh international trips and is a great organization oh and, is there
0: also a doctors without borders yeah so okay. borders is,
1: they do the international uh relief medicine and we do mm. we take that principle of humanitarian action but we apply it locally to our uh, santa barbara community
0: okay are they affiliated at all or is it two different things it's two different things okay um, we have some, we
1: had a physician who did uh, stint with doctors without Borders and he's one of the lead physicians out at Doctors Without walls but they're not okay. connected yeah
0: there must there must be some some channel where I saw the borders one at some point because I keep like yeah. it keeps coming to mind but yeah without yeah. walls okay without walls yeah so you're working with doctors without walls and you're and you're running practical pre-med which you were posting pretty frequently. And then you were also, I think you did like 10 posts for College Info Geek.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: what were your strategies for balancing your school, your class time, along with like the, the ton of studying you had to do, and then mm-hmm. all of these extracurriculars?
1: Yeah, so the, the study hacks I got from Cal Newport, as I got better than my sophomore year, I was finding that I really didn't have to spend as much time studying as I was my freshman and sophomore year. So even though I was spending maybe more hours studying my freshman and sophomore year, I was studying way more efficiently once I had fully integrated all the, the study strategies I'd gotten from Cal Newport and study hacks. And I I felt I didn't really need to study as many hours and I was getting better grades. So that really getting more efficient at my studying habits, becoming an active learner, really cut down on my study time and Um, I was able to kind of balance doing all that stuff. And a lot of it also was scheduling. I had to block out certain times of the week. I made a schedule where um, every week, I think, at a certain time, maybe I think it was like a Monday morning for a couple hours, I made sure that I was writing for that block and I couldn't do anything else. I couldn't study. I couldn't work on a presentation. I was only going to write either for practical pre-med or college info geek. And I made sure that way I was able to get – an article out every once in a while at least and I'd block out certain times for studying and block out certain times for docs out walls and I think that's such a big thing is that you want to make sure that you're blocking out certain times so you're making times in your schedule to work on what's important for you because otherwise you, you kind of get you can get lost in classes or lost in your extracurricular activities and kind of not do the other stuff you want to do too
0: right yeah, I totally agree. Like even even now that I don't have a, a, like a set schedule, I have to block things out. Yeah, because there are so many different things like, you know, there's blog post writing, there's reading books and keeping on with education, and everything. And if you don't block mm-hmm. it out, it's like you're just sitting there like, oh, I feel like writing, but I also feel like I should be reading this and I feel like I should do my yeah. email. And like, yeah, there's just that analysis paralysis yeah, there's so know. many things you
1: want to do. Yeah, so none of it. Yeah.
0: I found like two things for me. One, if I if I block out a, a, like a little region on my Google calendar to mm-hmm. so say, OK, I'm writing this article now or I'm interviewing this yep. person, you know, that's it's focused. And also if I plan it the night before, because mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. But like if you wake up and you, you eat breakfast and everything and then you're like, OK, what do I do now? I for me, I feel a lot more impulsive about things. And I'm prone to just be like, oh, I'll just, you know, work on whatever comes to mind right now. Yeah. But if I plan the ah. night before, it's like, OK, yesterday yeah. me mm-hmm. said to do this. I better- Exactly.
1: <laughs> Here's what I need to do.
0: He's boss. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Oh, and I, a big thing that I I came up with or I started doing my junior year. Was making Before I went to sleep, I made sure at least an hour before I went to sleep, I made a list of all the things I was going to do the next day. And I try to use, I take at least 10 minutes to kind of organize my thoughts from what did I get done today and what do I need to do tomorrow? And that way is kind of like you said, I didn't just eat breakfast and decide, all right, what am I going to do now? It was, hey, I have in the morning, I want to get these two things done in the afternoon. I want to get these three things these three things done and I think that made such a difference just having kind of a, a mental run through a mental checklist every day and what I was going to do
0: yeah like you want to you want to wake up with a mission I guess I would say instead of like trying to wake up and, and defining your mission before you do it that day mm-hmm. so uh so cool so let's talk about um your experience getting into med school because I've heard that's a pretty difficult process so what yeah. was that like uh, it's, it's a pretty
1: crazy year. So I applied at the end of my junior year is when I sent my first application in and that application, the application process is basically a year long process. You send your primary application in, in about June or July, and the process can literally go on all the way until next July for you. If you want to wait to, if you got in or not, but, um, yeah, so I, I decided to apply at the end of my junior year, which meant that if I, when I got accepted, that I'd be starting medical school right after I finished college. Really? Uh, so, so you have to submit a primary application, which has your primary essay and your letters of recommendation, and this is another thing that you'll realize about medical school application is that it's just a series and series of hoops. Because there are so many people that apply to medical school that they'll take every opportunity they can to disqualify you from running. So let's say you don't have all the certain letters of recommendation that they want. Then your your application, no matter how great you are in terms of GPA and your MCAT score, isn't even going to be looked at just because the computer will not sort you into the the pile that they look at. Mm. So it, that's one of the what's one of the pitfalls that a lot of people get with applying is that they don't see all the things they have to do. Maybe they didn't take that year of English, you know, and uh, that's another thing that can cut you down. So before I applied, I made sure I had all my prerequisite classes in place. I got all my letters of recommendation in place. And then I submitted my primary application. And what they do is um, certain schools will have cutoffs where if your GPA and your MCAT score, and the MCAT is the standardized test that you have to take in order to um, be competitive and apply to medical school. And it's how they quantify your, your science skills compared to other medical school applicants. So they, they take your GPA and your MCAT score. And if you make a certain cutoff on whatever magical number they come up with then they, they shoot you back, this thing called a secondary essay and it's a couple more smaller essays that you can fill out to talk about yourself and uh, you get the privilege of paying them an additional fee per school for them to read your application um, the privilege <laughs> the privilege of yeah, <laughs> paying them so I won't get into that it's a totally different podcast <laughs> <laughs> um, but once you submit your se- secondary application then you begin was quite possibly the the longest wait of your life because you can finish your those secondary applications in August, and some places will just take forever to get back to you about whether you get an interview or not. Um, some places won't even tell you you didn't get an interview, and there's one medical school I applied to that I found out I didn't get into their school because one day I couldn't log in into the applicant checker website. Uh, they never told, they never sent me an email that I didn't get wow. in. They just one day they just said, Oh, your application login doesn't work in any doesn't work anymore. Like so, how, like
0: how many weeks or
1: months down the road was this? And that and that was at least I think about five or six months later.
0: Oh dude, so, that wait has got to be agonizing.
1: And yeah, uh, and the the thing is I applied to thirty schools. Thirty? Yeah, 30, which is, yeah. (laughs) So I had had a a 3.5 GPA and a 30 MCAT score. And um, the averages to get in are around a 31 MCAT score and anywhere between a 3.5 to a 3.7. GPA depending on the schools that you look at if you're trying to go to school like Harvard it's going to be even higher maybe a three nine and a 37 MCAT
0: score and okay so um, so you ended up on like the lower end of the average actually yeah I was my
1: my GPA was around the lower end my my numbers around the lower the lower end of the average but I felt that I had a pretty strong extracurricular activities and my letters of rec were really good and um I figured I might as well give it a shot and see what happens. So I applied to 30 schools. Uh, I heard back from about, I received about six or seven interview invites. Okay. Um, so that was pretty cool. And that was one of the cool thing about getting those interview invites is that they're all over the country. So I got to fly around a little bit my senior year and go to these interviews and check out the schools. And, um, it's kind of a nerve wracking process because you always kind of hear about medical school interviews being really tough and them kind of just judging you. And, uh, yeah, I was super nervous before my first one. And, um, but I got through it and it's, uh, they really are just looking to make sure that you're a normal person. If you make it through, if you actually get an interview, that means they like you on paper. So yeah, at that, at that point, you kind of, you just kind of have to be a normal person in the interview. And, um, um, You know, so the interview process, but was a little, definitely a little nerve wracking because it's you've worked this hard and you've done AMCAT and you've done all these classes and you've done everything and now it's kind of all hinging on this one moment of whether or not you get the acceptance or not. Yeah, so, it's like the yeah. catalyst. Exactly. It's it's like the last little thing that you have to do, but if you don't do it, then you don't get it. But yeah, um, I was actually really fortunate that I got accepted to all the schools i interviewed at except for one i got waitlisted that oh cool and um so i think i really got five or six acceptances and one waitlist so um i felt like my interview interview skills are pretty strong and i attribute that largely to the public speaking skills i got uh, as my job so yeah Anybody that has a chance to get public speaking skills before the interview for medical school is such a big plus. Yeah, because um, you're you're just able to talk about yourself. As cheesy as it sounds, you're able to sell yourself, and I think that's such an important aspect to have, regardless of what you're in.
0: Oh, I know. Like, yeah, it does sound cheesy, the personal branding mm-hmm. and self promotion, mm-hmm. but it's 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 necessary today, oh, yeah. and that's why, like, I tell mm-hmm. people, like, hey, if you want a great summer job after your freshman year be an orientation assistant help the mm-hmm. new freshmen come in and get their classes signed up and everything because you will get mad mm-hmm. interpersonal skills from that mm-hmm. um so i got two very uh, important points out of what you just said about the whole mm-hmm. process that i want to reiterate so one, yeah. you were saying even if your grades are great your mcat's great if you forget to do like those letters of recommendation or any little detail. Yeah. It's not yeah. just some like little old grandma who's gonna mm-hmm. say, "Oh, you know, he meant well. I'll let him in." It's a computer no. that weeds yeah. you out automatically. It looks for specific terms on your application and puts you in a pile. So it's very important to to be mindful of everything and to make sure you know all the recommend or the requirements, uh, you know, front and back before you actually hit submit on that application. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. And then uh, the other thing that I noticed is you said you applied to 30 schools yeah and you only got interview requests from around six six so seven, yes, six yeah. seven so only about 20 percent actually replied to you mm-hmm. you know and but but you ended up getting accepted by around six of them mm-hmm. which is really cool so you know that just kind of reiterates the point that you kind of have to get yourself out there And Mm -hmm. even if you get rejected, like you got rejected by 80 percent of the schools that you applied to. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But but the other 20 percent, all of them wanted to talk to you. And after they talked to you and got to know you, all of them wanted you, Mm -hmm. which is awesome. So it's really just about getting out there and and being able to deal with a little bit of rejection because there's somebody out there who's going to who's going to like what you have to show
1: yeah and it's such a numbers game at some point in that you have to look at all the thousands of people that are applying and sometimes it's just so based on even the person who's reading your essay when you first submit it and maybe they had a bad day or maybe Mm -hmm. they just don't identify with what you wrote in your essay so you know you don't I didn't take it personally if a school didn't accept me or didn't send me an interview um it's really just you want to send out as much applications as you can and see what bites back. And you just kind of kind of cast a wide net just because it is so competitive.
0: Yeah. It's very competitive. And as you said, it's it's a numbers game Mm -hmm. and it depends on a lot of different factors that are honestly out of your control. Yeah. Like I've looked at uh, like conviction numbers from judges who, who who hand down their verdicts in the early morning versus Mm -hmm. like those who do it like in the early afternoon when they're tired it's just uh, crazy like these little tiny factors that no one thinks about they affect things Mm -hmm. so i mean when you're when you're a kind of person that's in that situation you have to just throw out as many lines as you can and hope one of them catches something because a lot of the times most of them won't and the last episode that i did uh i interviewed jenny blake and she was telling me that 27 publishers rejected her book proposal but number 28 took it
1: and yeah, that's the thing. You, you really only need one person or one, one school to say yes. And so it doesn't matter how many schools say no, as long as one says yes.
0: Yeah. So, uh, did any of the interview, the interviewers talk about how they like liked your extracurricular experience and like, how did that kind of factor into getting accepted?
1: Uh, that's pretty much all I talked about during my interviews is my extracurricular extracurricular experiences because you can only, I mean, it's pretty boring to talk about your GPA or your MCAT and it's not really something exciting. And I, I felt like I had experiences that were a little outside the box in terms of writing, especially online. That's something that, um, I knew it was something that I had a lot more experience than basically all my interviewers. They, they wondered how I set up the website. Like the fact that I even set up a website to begin with blew a lot of people's minds. So it's something that it's not really that hard. And if you do it, people just look at you like, wow, that's really cool. Yeah. Um, and I was able to talk about Droughtout Walls and just how passionate I was about that. And you know, I really didn't talk about my classes and really any of my, my interviews is all about my extracurricular activities and what I wanted to do with my career. And that's why I think it's just so important to, to really find something that you're passionate about in, in your experiences, because I actually sat in on a group interview where there was four of us, four of us uh, applicants that they're interviewing at the same time. And this is, I think my last, my last interview and I could kind of see the differences in interview style between people who um, had only interviewed a couple times and didn't have great experiences as compared to the people who did have great experiences that they could talk about in great detail. And you could see the people who had maybe very generic experiences. They talked very vaguely like, oh, I, I love patient contact. I, I want to help people. You know, those are just really boring answers. to Yeah, give. this is very <laughs> so, generic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It doesn't really say anything. You're saying words, but you're not really saying anything.
0: Yeah. Whereas you were able to say, I go out 20 hours a week and help mm-hmm. people. And yeah. I love this specific aspect of it, you know, and I've been doing it for a year or however long you were doing it.
1: Yeah. And I had, I had really vivid stories that I'd practiced many times telling in front of you know, audiences for public speaking. So
0: it, it, telling it to someone just across the table is really easy for me. Awesome. And so this is an aside that I just kind of want to like, uh, let people know about. You can do practice interviews. Oh uh, yeah. Like my, 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 the business career office that at my school, they held them like twice a year mm-hmm. and I made sure to go to them. Even mm-hmm. if like the, the practice interviewer from the company who was doing it, I didn't want to work for them. I just went anyway. Cause mm-hmm. I was like, I'm going to, be able to represent myself better in a real interview if I just do this, get the experience, get that practice.
1: Yeah. And I think practice interviewing is such a great idea. I did one, I did actually a few before I did my real interviews and I did one of them with one of my mentors and he asked me what I'd be interested in in the future. And I told him I was really interested in health policy. And then he kind of sensed that I wasn't I was kind of just lying a little bit just to sound (laughs) good. So he started launching into the Affordable Care Act and all these different things about health policy. And I kind of just sat there like, uh, I don't (laughs) really know. So I I learned a big thing was that you want to, you know, you want to come in with your strong points and you also don't want to, you got to, you have to refine what you're talking about. If it's something that you're not very strong about, don't even try to touch that because yeah. you can get in that situation where they're like, Oh really? Tell me more about that. And you have nothing else to say besides the, Oh, I really want to help people.
0: I've always heard that you shouldn't put something in a resume unless like you are able to have a conversation about it with exactly. the recruiter. Cause they might ask you, Oh, you, you know, PHP. Cool. Well, uh, tell me, tell about, me about, you know, it. what do you think <laughs> about the new version and everything? And you're just like, well, yeah. I just actually, Looked at a YouTube tutorial for five minutes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know how to do the opening and closing tags. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you got into medical school. Medical school. Mm-hmm. Um, and how many – you said it was four years of medical school, right? Yes. Are you done with all four at this point then or are you no. still – I'm in my third year
1: now. So the way that medical school is split mm-hmm. is your traditionally most schools your first two years are in the classroom so it's very theoretical you're learning the scientific basis for all these diseases and the the management and treatment and then your last two years you go out to the hospital to the clinics and that's where you really earn your chops and you work with patients and you try to you learn from physicians and doctors who are already there who already have experience and you watch them and um so that's where I'm at right now is I'm actually doing my third year rotations in Ventura County. And mm. right now I'm in a family medicine rotation and I get to see patients and ask them about what's going on with them and how their day is going and come up with possible diagnoses and treatments. Sometimes I'm right. More often than not, I'm wrong. Yeah. Um, but at that, that's to be expected at this point.
0: It's always lupus. Yeah. It's, <laughs>
1: always-, <laughs> it's always in the back of my head. <laughs> But, uh, you know, that's all part of the learning experience, and I just – I really enjoy it. Uh, The first two years are definitely crazy workload. Mm -hmm. Nothing like – nothing really like an undergrad could compare to it.
0: Okay. So were you able to keep any sort of extracurricular things going during those first two years, or did you really have to buckle down and kind of pare down your activities? For the first couple of months when we started
1: doing gross anatomy and – Uh, I'd never taken anatomy before and they also you have to do going to cadaver lab where you're dissecting um, cadavers and learning anatomy all for the first time it was super intense Um, so I didn't really do anything at that point actually it was so discombobulated that I heard my text message go off one night at like two in the morning and I thought it was my alarm so I ended up (laughs) just getting out of bed I took a shower I got dressed and I was about to head out and then I looked at my phone and realized it was only two o'clock in the morning not seven o'clock like I needed to go and I was just like holy cow I I went through the shower and I went through the whole process of getting ready and I was just like all right well I guess I'll go back to sleep (laughs) and this this was week. I think two of medical school, <laughs> but it but it got a lot better after that. Yeah, yeah. You, just, you get used to it. You get used to it, and um, I was actually so I was actually able to pick up a fair amount of extracurriculars, and that's kind of what kept me sane during medical school. Is that if you just study all the time, you just drive yourself crazy. So I uh, I stopped doing per- practical premed, but now I have a new blog called White Coat Do. Yeah. And that's more of my medical student featured blog. And I write about health policy and health technology. And I write also for a uh, medical student online magazine called the Almost Doctors Channel. All right. And so I I take some of my articles and I put it over there and uh, I actually also do admissions advising for a new startup called Lean on Med. And what we try to do is we connect medical students with pre-meds who might need either essay editing or, say, one-on-one Skype advice like this. And we're able to give them um, our personal take on, you know, what they should do for the application because we just went through it. And, you know, I think medical students have such a great ability to connect with people who are applying because you could ask someone who's a doctor, but they applied 20, 30 years ago. What do they really you know how relevant is their advice yeah
0: so so is that uh do you pronounce it white coat do or is it like white coat d-o like standing for something
1: oh white coat d-o and the d-o stands for doctor of osteopathic medicine oh okay so, yeah, yeah so that's actually the the medical degree that i'll be getting at the end of the fourth year is gotcha. a doctor of osteopathic medicine
0: okay yeah. i've been mispronouncing that for <laughs> ever no since worries. you lost <laughs> <watched>
1: it <laughs> Don't worry.
0: <laughs> so, uh, do you do you write more for that one or for the magazine that you're working for? Um, I write. Right now, I'm actually I was actually took a little bit of a
1: writing hiatus because the last two months, really, I was studying. The last month and a half, I was studying for my first licensing exam, and that was miserable in the sense mm. that it was the first time in my life that. I really had to study maybe ten to twelve hours a day. Wow! Hard studying ten like to twelve hours a day, even with those
0: active study techniques, it's still like eight, that much. Yeah, because it, it's just it's literally everything
1: from the first two years that you could think of on one exam, and it's like the MCAT, but then you take it into medical school and you put it on steroids, and it's this eight-hour exam, and it covers every discipline of medicine and pharmacology and everything and uh, it's a just this huge multiple choice exam that all medical students have to take and it's it plays a huge role in determining what kind of residency you can apply to okay so it's very so you imagine all those people all those neurotic pre-meds who actually made it into medical school and then you pit them against each other again on an eight-hour exam and that's kind of what you get with your licensing. That's something
0: that's even harder. That's something that's even harder. Around. Yeah.
1: <laughs> wow. So, so that's so actually, I, I actually haven't been writing for the past two months just because that did require just such a level of dedication that you really couldn't afford to focus on anything else for those month and a half, two months.
0: Yeah, no kidding. So, yeah. so the last two years of medical school, those are kind of in. They're rotational in a, in a hospital or, or a medical practice, mm-hmm. and those are are those unpaid at that point. Yeah. Okay. Uh,
1: well, you're you're paying the school, really. Okay, and then <laughs> so,
0: then you go to your three years of paid uh, practice under another doctor. So it's yeah. almost like you're getting like five years of hands-on, but three of them you get paid. Yeah. Okay. And uh, yeah, basically. So that's right now,
1: in a large part, just because we as a medical student you probably absorb more than you contribute if that makes sense you're you're taking in knowledge and in a way you're slowing down yeah. a physician who would have to otherwise just do the do the medicine himself but now he has to teach you and all this other stuff and that kind of in a way slows down the practice flow so in right. order to compensate for that you have to pay school and the school pays the rotation site and
0: yeah okay Mm-hmm. Well, that makes sense. I guess it makes sense that, you know, you would have to pay for that kind of thing. I know people who mm-hmm. are doing internships in other majors where it's like a required internship and they have to pay mm-hmm. for like this internship class. But they just wow. go they have to go <laughs> off and find their own internship and do it. And like it's just wow. credit that and I don't understand that because like the school isn't really doing a whole lot to help you with that. But I guess I can understand mm-hmm. if you're if you're paired with a doctor and if their workflow is a little slowed down, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's totally necessary, you know. Yeah, we need more yeah. doctors down the road when those ones retire. <laughs> Definitely, and I, it's it's such a it's part. Of, I think it's part of like the social contract where
1: you, in order to produce the next generation of physicians who are going to take care of our our workforce, we also need to train them. And the only way they're going to get training is in a real world setting.
0: Yep. Yeah. And I mean, that's like a lot of other things, you know, mentors, they're mm-hmm. awesome. They take a little bit of time out of their day to help you out.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And in return, we take up the mantle afterwards. Yeah. Exactly. Cool. Well, this has been super enlightening. I think we're yeah. hitting about the outer, the hour mark now. And I actually know what a med student does at this point. Yeah. I've been educated. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, hopefully some other people have been educated and hopefully you can get some sleep because it sounds like. Yeah you're doing some, some crazy stuff over there. Um, I know we've mentioned it earlier on the podcast, but just to kind of wrap it up, uh, mm-hmm. where can people find you online? Where do you want people to go if they want to connect with you or find your work? So you can find me online through
1: my personal blog. It's whitecoatdo.com. I'm also on Twitter. Yeah, my Twitter handle is rwinmed. Um, not sure if you can find, we can just put a link for that as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'll put everything that you mentioned in the show notes. So it will all be linked up there. You can connect to me either through my
1: blog or on Twitter. And my blog also has a contact information. So if you want to send me an email with any questions, you can get to me that way.
0: Cool. Yeah. I know I had, I had a reader email me and he was a pre-med and Mm -hmm. I was like, you should talk to Ryan. Yeah, (laughs) because I don't know anything. I don't know if he contacted you or not, but I was like, Uh I don't know. But thank you for the idea. I now have a podcast idea. And here we are doing the podcast. So hopefully some students out there who are looking to do pre-med, looking to do med school, have gotten some really good insight. But yeah, thank you so much for taking the time out to this interview. Yeah, my pleasure. Awesome. Well, you have a great night, dude. All right. Thanks, man. Bye. All right. That's it. Hopefully you learned a lot from this interview with Ryan Wynn. If you still have questions about medical school, pre-med, or just uh, learning to study actively and getting a lot of information into your head in a short amount of time, Ryan's a great person for that, so you can always contact him. Uh, He's rwinmed uh, on Twitter, and you can find the link to his Twitter and his site in the show notes, which... Uh, just as a reminder, you can find it at SIG Podcast, CIG Podcast.com, and then scroll down, click the link for episode 26. Uh, once again, I want to hear your questions about college, about productivity, internships, careers, money management, all that good stuff. Email them to me, Thomas at Collegeinfogeek.com, and we'll get those questions answered on the show or If I don't know the answer to that question, and I don't know the answer to a lot of questions, I'll go out and find somebody who is an expert in that area, bring them on the show, and give you more information than you can shake a stick at. So send those questions in, and it'll help make the podcast better. Speaking of making the podcast better, if you're liking the show, if you're getting value out of it, and you want to help it grow, the best thing you can do is leave a review and rating on iTunes. And I'll link uh, to... The podcast on iTunes, the bottom link of the show notes, you'll see a link that says leave a review. It helps immensely. It helps kind of get the show going up the charts and more people can see it. And that's really the best way for the show to grow. So if you like it and you want to help it, I would love it if you did that. Thank you so much. And I actually want to read a review from an awesome person who just left one a couple of days ago. This review comes from Tom James Miller. He says, awesome insight into the learning process, five stars. And he says, the blog is a go-to resource for college students and post-college 20-somethings on its own, but the podcast is an awesome compliment. It's great to hear the perspective from other college students on the learning process and how they manage their way through successfully. I thoroughly enjoyed the last episode with Jenny Blake, who runs lifeaftercollege.org. And I thought Thomas gave a very adept interview, and there were a ton of valuable insights that came out of the conversation. The CIG podcast will keep its spot in my feed. Highly recommended. Thank you so much, Tom. The interview means a ton, and if you would like to leave a review, not interview, review means a ton, and if you want to leave one of your own, I will probably read it on the show. And I'm also working on some other thank you things, so keep an eye on that, but Uh, just know that I really appreciate you if you leave a review and I still appreciate you for listening anyway. So if you leave a review, extra appreciation. All right, that's it. So I will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the College Info Geek podcast. Grow your brain even more at www.collegeinfogeek.com.